Okay, so first we'll review a little bit um, where we ended up last time, which was talking about methods to measure the spectrum of an atomic or molecular species by observing the fluorescence coming from an excited state. And so we talked about dispersed fluorescence and basically said that was the most straightforward method, but that it had some limitations that allowed this stimulated emission pumping to be a more useful technique. So we'll review those two and then we'll look at this paper on stimulated emission pumping. Okay, so the idea is that for a number of measurements that you might be interested in doing, absorption spectroscopy is not the most efficient way to do it. Um, for instance, if you have a small absorption and you have a large power that you need to uh, put through your cell to detect uh, the presence of the absorbing species, you may find that the high power you have could saturate your photodetectors um, or could produce enough shot noise on the detectors that it's difficult to see small levels of absorption. So another opportunity to detect the effect of absorption is to pump a molecule to an excited state and then detect the fluorescence back down to a lower energy state. And so the basic principle there is called laser-induced fluorescence. And if you want to observe more than just a single transition to an excited state, but you want to study the various lower energy states that aren't excited directly, you can take the fluorescence that comes off of this excited molecule and attempt to spectrally resolve it. Okay, so here we've got these low energy photons coming off in this uh, short transition and then these higher energy photons coming from a longer transition. So we could put those through a grading spectrometer or a prism spectrometer and attempt to determine what fraction of the light is in this versus this transition, um, what wavelengths we have there. And so that would tell us a little bit about the location of these energy levels and the probability of transitions between the relative probability of transition between the different states. Okay, so can someone remind me what some of the problems were with that? Yeah, so it's difficult to capture all of the fluorescence. So you have low power detected. And what's one of the issues with using a, say, a grading spectrometer to spectrally resolve this fluorescence? <laughs> so the resolution that you would observe depends on the instrument, right? And so you need a given size grading to achieve whatever resolution you need. Um, there's practical limits on, on that. So that the resolution of a grading spectrometer or prism spectrometer is much less than the practical resolution you can get using the line width of a laser as your measure of frequency and just tuning that. Okay, so there's this other technique called stimulated emission pumping, which on the surface has some similarities. The ground state is excited to an excited state via a pump, and that's allowed to fluoresce back down to a lower state, and you're detecting the fluorescence in order to observe, um, or to say something about the absorption to this excited state. Um, but in order to learn about the different energy levels that this excited state can decay to, rather than just dispersing the fluorescence and measuring the wavelength of all the different fluorescing photons, you can send in a probe of a given frequency. And when that probe has a frequency such that it's not resonant, um, or it's not resonant between the excited state and any other state, so let's say the frequency corresponds to this distance on the energy level diagram, it will just pass through with the transparent medium. And as you tune the frequency, when it becomes resonant with the transition, it will stimulate a transition. You'll get laser amplification. The excited population will emit photons. And so the energy will decay 
via the stimulated emission. And so the population in this upper state will get uh, transitioned to whatever state the probe is resonant at, and the energy gets carried away with the probe beam. And the remaining population, which is now reduced because it's saturated by this probe beam, can fluoresce via whatever other mechanisms it had available to it. And so that amount of fluorescence will be decreased. You have reduced population in the upper state due to the probe beam saturating it. And that reduces the amount of fluorescence into all other states. So if you're observing with the same sort of integrating optics and, and sensitive detector over here, the fluorescence, you'll see a dip in the fluorescence as you tune the probe through a resonant transition. So the big advantage here is that the line width with which you can measure, so the, your ability to resolve an energy level is not determined by some grading spectrometer, which has very limited resolution, but rather it's determined by the line width of this laser. If the laser has a broad line width, then there's a region of energies over which it will overlap with this uh, transition. But if it's a narrow line width, then you can have a very narrow resolution as you scan the frequency of the laser or alternatively scan the energy of this in this diagram. Okay, so typical laser can have a line width that's a million to a billion times less than that of a typical spectrometer. So you get much better resolution this way. Okay, so any questions on the theory in the background? Have you read the paper? Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, and it takes, I think it takes talking through it to sort it out. Certainly when I looked at this the first time, I didn't understand it. I had to go through and highlight things and, and try to make sense of it all. Okay. So the first thing is the notation. Right? This is unfamiliar notation to me. Or it was the first time I saw it, so I had to look this up. Does anybody maybe who has stronger chemistry background than myself know what this uh, delta and sigma notation represents? So these are atomic transitions, or these are atomic levels. A1 delta, x3 sigma. Um, the delta and the sigma are Greek letters that correspond to D and S, which is a hint. There's also this pi level. I don't know if it's listed anywhere here in the abstract. There's an example of the pi level, which is P. So S, P, D, F. Those correspond to electronic energy levels, right? We use S, P, D, F when we're talking about atoms. Sigma, pi, delta, phi when we're talking about molecules. Okay, so um, without going through the full notation, that just hopefully illuminates a little bit of what's going on here. Um, it talks about, let's see, the... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we need a stronger chemistry contingent here to poke their brains. Yeah. Um, a couple other things. The NH radicals. What's a radical? What's that? Okay, so it's it's a piece of a molecule, basically, an atom or molecule that has uh, unpaired electron in the outermost shell. So they're highly reactive. So it's just it's a particular type of molecule, and they describe a transition in this particular molecule that's strongly forbidden. So strongly forbidden means what in terms of its line width? Very narrow, right? So it's difficult to detect in the sense that um, the total amount of fluorescence in this line is going to be small just due to its narrow line width. Okay, so using dispersed fluorescence or trying to observe this line via absorption measurements would be difficult. 
Okay, so I think the first thing to do is to try to piece together what the energy level spectrum of this radical is. So there's three energy levels that are discussed. There's the, let me see, the A1 delta, the X3 sigma, and the A3 pi. So is anyone able to uh, make sense of where these energy levels lie relative to each other? The sigma will be lower than the pi, which is lower than the delta. You want to describe your reasoning for that? Um, it would be the total angular momentum for the molecule. Okay. Yeah. Now, let's see, we're told that uh, let's see if I can find the page where this is described. Um, there are three steps to this experiment that are described on page um, 115. So the first page, the bottom right, the last paragraph, says three different steps are involved in this experiment. So in terms of these energy levels, let's try to figure out where the NH radicals are being pushed around during these three steps. Okay, so the first step is the radical being generated by a neodymium YAG laser photolysis of hydrozoic acid at a wavelength of 266 nanometers. Uh, a chemical reaction induced by light. Okay, and it's an NH radical in the A1 delta. So you have an NH3 molecule, which is hydrozoic acid. Uh, it gets illuminated with this ultraviolet light. It's a lot of energy. It breaks it apart. If you have an NH, then you have, what else, uh, N2, nitrogen. I'm just going to point out that I'm not certain. I think this, this level actually may be the highest energy level. So I'm just going to put that up there now as a possibility. And then we'll see as we follow through the steps why that may or may not, may not be the case. Um, before we get to that, it says it's this, this photolysis is done at a wavelength of 266 nanometers. Um, does anybody have any indication of why 266? What's significant about that number? So it, certainly it must be in the band that's required to break it apart. Um, certainly 265, 267 would probably work as well. Um, it's quarter of the YAG laser wavelength, right? So they describe this is done with a neodymium YAG laser. The fundamental is at uh, 1064 nanometers. So this is one quarter of that. So frequency doubling is done twice to produce this fourth harmonic. Okay, so in the second step, intense tunable laser light around 790 nanometers is used to stimulate 
the NH A1 delta to X3 sigma transition. So that's what? Stimulated emission. So going from here, we go down. Right? It's, it's stimulated emission, so it's a lowering of the energy level. So we had a photon coming in that was at 790 nanometers. So that tells us the energy level separation of those two. And then in the third step, actually before I get to that, it says this is done after complete translational and rotational relaxation within the A1 delta state. What does that mean? Jennifer? Yeah, so this state is really a, a series of closely spaced energy levels. So this corresponds to an electronic energy level, and then there's rotational and vibrational states that form a band there. So giving it time to lower its energy through collisions until its rotational and vibrational energy is dissipated. And then this transitional energy is more well-defined and the, the pump can be more efficient at stimulating that transition. Okay, so in the third step, the generated ground state molecule or ground state radicals here are detected by laser-induced fluorescence using the transition from this ground state to the A3 pi state, which is one of these two levels. Now, now is when we'll be able to figure out where that level needs to be uh, using laser-induced fluorescence. And it doesn't actually state at this point the wavelength, but a little later on in the paper it describes a wavelength of 330 nanometers as being the wavelength used for that laser-induced fluorescence. So if you want to detect molecules that are in the ground state here by laser-induced fluorescence, what are you doing? You're pumping them up and then watching the fluorescence as they decay back. So if you pump them with a 330 nanometer photon, are you pumping it above this level or below? It's above because this transition was 790 nanometers. So that has to be higher. So the third step is pumping with a 330 nanometer photon to this excited state, and then watching it decay. Yeah, that, that was a little surprising to me too. That you're looking at the, you're pumping it to a state, and then you're watching it decay back to the same state, um, as opposed to watching it decay to some other state. Um, and one of the reasons that that surprised me a little bit is whatever wavelength your pump laser is at, it's going to be the same wavelength your fluorescence laser is at. So it's going to be very difficult to differentiate fluorescence from scattered light. Okay. But that's what's being done. That's what, that's what it describes. And, and later on, as we work through, through the paper, we'll see where they describe the wavelengths of the, of the pump and the fluorescence. And they're both 330 nanometers. Okay, so on the overhead we have the hydrozoic acid being split by the ultraviolet light from the neodymium YAG laser. 
that generates the NH radical. That gets uh, dumped down into this lower state. Remember, this is the transition that's being studied. And it's a strongly forbidden transition. We're told in the abstract it's strongly forbidden. It has a lifetime of 12 and a half nanoseconds, which basically means this upper state would not decay on its own. It would not decay in the time frame of these pulses are at 10 hertz. So they would not decay in a tenth of a second. So you need to stimulate that transition down to the ground state if you then want to detect the elements in this ground state through the laser-induced fluorescence. And so that's the third step, is to send in a laser at 336 nanometers that pumps this up to an excited state and then watch it fluoresce back down. And so that's what happens if your tunable laser is on resonance with this transition. Remember, that's the transition being studied. If the tunable laser is not on resonance with this transition, then that dump laser goes right through and it doesn't excite this transition. And because we've waited for all this upper state population to decay to the ground state, the fact that there's this energy level structure here, there's these bands, doesn't really matter because all the atoms are in the ground state. And so when the laser is tuned just off of uh, this particular transition, the light will just pass through. You won't have any population in the ground state. And when the lift pump comes in at 336 nanometers, there's nothing. If, if there was a transition to the ground state, there's population here to pump up. But if the probe laser went right through the material, and there's nothing in the ground state to pump up. And because this transition here is a 12 and a half second transition, um, there won't be fluorescence to this ground state in the time frame of when this, this uh, laser-induced fluorescence pump comes in and tries to pump, pump this up. So if nothing's being pumped up, nothing's decaying, and our photodetector here doesn't see any fluorescence. Okay, so we're going to tune the pump uh, that probes this transition tune the probe for this transition and observe the frequency it's at when we detect fluorescence here. That's the basics of this experiment. So that's what we want to differentiate what's scattered and what's not. It's not tuned. Whatever they receive is scattered light. Yeah, I mean, if the, sta if the scattered light is, is static, then you'd expect as you tune it, however much scattered light you detect, that's a baseline. You should well, I mean, Depends what you mean by, by constant. Things move at low frequency. Acoustic vibrations are a big issue, particularly if you do this experiment in air as opposed to a vacuum tank. Um, and so things move. You do get uh, Doppler, basically Doppler shifts that cause uh, time dependence to the scattered light. You can always average over long periods of time. Yeah. The other thing you can do is uh, you can look for, if you're pumping this laser at 10 hertz, the probe laser at 10 hertz, um, you can look for your fluorescence signal here to have a 10 hertz frequency. Uh, so even if you had, say, a CW lift pulse, or not pulse, but a constant uh, pump from the ground state to the upper state, so that as soon as there's population in the lower state, it immediately goes up and back down and produces fluorescence. That will only occur when your probe hits this, and it hits it at 10 hertz. So you should see a signal at 10 hertz if it's fluorescence. If it's scattered light from your pump, that should be always there, whether it's constant in time or has some time variation. OK, so the next page, 116, has a big block diagram that I want to go through. And what I want to do is see if we can figure out the purpose in terms of those three steps of every part of this diagram. So let's just start step one. Step one was a 266 nanometer pulse that dissociated the hydrozoic acid. So what here is providing that? We've got. Okay, uh, C. So we've got A, B, C, D, and E are all lasers. So we've got five lasers in this system, not counting the, 
the laser diode pumps for the neodymium EMEAG laser. So, uh, someone who said C, why? So, the frequency generation here, we have SHG stands for second harmonic generation. So, it's doubling the laser frequency from 1064 to 532. The efficiency is not 100%, that's why you still have some 1064. That may not be necessary or desirable for the experiment, but it's there. FHG is fourth harmonic generation in this context. I suppose it could mean fifth or fifteenth. Or, um, so the 532 is essentially getting doubled to 266. And then HS is a harmonic separator. It means it, it's picking off the 266 nanometer light, sending that into the experiment. So that's right. What's this? Uh, is it maybe dielectric mirror? Dichroic. So dichroic is one that reflects certain wavelengths and not others. Dichroic? It means it reflects some wavelengths and not others. So you typically would specify the mirror to be high reflectivity at, say, in this case, 266, and then highly transmissive at maybe 1064 and 532. So if there's any, any of that that leaks through this harmonic separator, and a harmonic separator generally is a dichroic mirror. So I don't know whether they had some different mechanism here or whether they just had multiple dichroic mirrors, but it seems a little odd to me that they specified that twice. Okay, step two then was to send in a 790 nanometer probe that probed this transition. Um, that probe, we were told it was at 790 nanometers, but is that a constant? Or does that need to be tuned? Yeah. That's, that's the one that needs to be tuned because we're, if we want to probe this transition, we want to sweep that laser frequency through it. So which of these lasers here is tunable? The dye laser, yeah. So there's two dye lasers in the system. So one is pumped by an excimer laser and one is pumped by green light, which is the second harmonic of neodymium yag. Uh, an excimer laser is typically used, it produces ultraviolet light. It's typically used when you need very high energy photons. You can see that 308 nanometer output. So this dye laser is being driven with higher energy photons so that it can produce higher energy photons. So this is going to be a lower wavelength than this dye laser is producing. So you can see from the diagram, this one is the one producing 790 nanometers, and that's tunable. Okay, so that's being sent into the, I think that's observation chamber is what the OC stands for, but that's where the uh, sample is. And then step three was pumping this ground state to the upper state with uh, I guess it was 336 nanometer light. Okay, so I guess we can figure out where that comes from. That's the other dye laser, 336. So D pumps the dye laser. Oh, the dye laser, well, yeah. I mean, it's the output of a laser can't be higher energy than the input that pumps it. So if we looked at the energy levels for the dye, there's typically a, a fluorescence band and then the ground state. And we have a pump going in at 308 nanometers, which is somewhere in this fluorescence band. And then you'll have rapid decay to the bottom of that band. And then laser action back down. So you can see that the output of the laser is lower energy than the input. Lower energy, longer wavelength. Okay, so this is fired first. This is a pulse. Um, it has to be a pulse because you have frequency generation. 
That requires nonlinear crystals. Nonlinear crystals have an efficiency which is not linear. They're more efficient at higher power, so you tend to put all the energy in a very short pulse to get efficient generation. So I think this was a 30 nanosecond pulse. Um, so that's pulsed, and then this is triggered shortly after that. There's a, a delay between them that's long enough to let the population that's created relax to the lowest level of that uh, band. And then this laser needs to be firing essentially at any point after the probe laser fires. It's not so critical. The timing isn't so critical. The material in the ground state's not going anywhere. It's in the ground state. It can't go anywhere. OK, so this is the observation chamber. What is actually being observed? Yeah. So if you detect fluorescence, generally what, what's, what properties of a photodetector do you need to detect fluorescence? What's well, one of the characteristics of fluorescence? It's low power. It's isotropic, and, it's, and therefore you generally have a low amount of power that you're collecting. So there's a couple different detectors. There's a photodiode and a... Uh, that's a photomultiplier tube. So which one would be suitable for detecting low power? Yeah. yeah. So the photomultiplier tube detects essentially single photons. So it's put here next to the observation chamber to detect the fluorescence. What's the purpose of this photodiode? Or let me ask this first. What's the purpose of this thing labeled boxcar? Well, before you say it, if you don't know what the purpose of the boxcar is, then you don't know what the purpose of the photodetector is. Uh, it, what it does, it doesn't compare two things, it averages. The boxcar integrator is a, is a device that averages repetitive pulses. Okay, so um, in a way similar to how an oscilloscope will draw a repetitive waveform over and over on the same trace. As long as it's repetitive and, and triggered properly, you get a stable trace in time. Um, a boxcar does the exact same thing. If you have a pulse, and it's repetitive, you could imagine putting it in an oscilloscope and maybe averaging over many, many traces in order to reduce your noise. But if the pulse is very short, beyond the, the time scale that you can observe on an oscilloscope, what you can do is you can record or sample the pulse for just a short period of time and measure the power and then repeat that measurement on the next pulse and the next pulse and the next pulse. So what you're doing is then averaging a particular point on the pulse many times and then you can shift the point at which you're going to measure measure the next point. And so you can step through the pulse and average point by point going across. So in the end, you have the same thing as what you'd have on an oscilloscope, where you're averaging over many, many, many pulses. But instead of recording the entire pulse and then averaging, you're recording a part of the pulse um, because you can't uh, essentially record the whole thing with the uh, with the stepping, th you can't. Uh, the pulse is so short that your electronics aren't fast enough to measure re repetitive points. Then you can have electronics that measure a single point relatively quickly. Take a long time to reset, measure another another point. So, in order to do this, you need to tell the boxcar integrator when to record its, its signal. So how long after the leading edge of the pulse? 
for instance. So you need to know when the leading edge of the pulse is. That's what the photodiode is for. So it is, acts as a trigger for the boxcar, and it says, OK, as soon as the uh, pulse has reached a certain energy threshold, say this point right here, the boxcar should start its timer. And then it can, can record data at whatever delay has been set for it. Okay, so that works together with the boxcar. The last thing, and we haven't talked about this at all, is this photoacoustic cell and the microphone. Anybody pick up what that's used for? Let me ask this. What's, let's draw our canonical absorption spectroscopy apparatus, and let's ask what's missing from this. Okay, So we've got a laser. We can tune it. Got some sample, a photo detector, and we'll record the output of the photo detector as we tune the frequency. And then we have to know what frequency we're at, so we have to measure that somehow. So we might have an interferometer here, or a spectrometer, or something that can measure that and calibrate this axis here is frequency. Right, and then we get some power as a function of frequency, and we can interpret that however, however we interpret it. Uh, what element here is missing, or we, have we not discussed yet? Yeah, the thing to measure the frequency of the laser. So the, the way to calibrate the frequency axis. So that's what this does. It describes it in not very much detail, but it says, uh, I guess on page 117, just before the table at the bottom, it says, to calibrate the wavelength of the pump, or I'm sorry, the analyzer dump laser with high accuracy, a particular overtone of HCN in the same wavelength region is detected with this photoacoustic cell. So that's just a calibration device. There's material in there with a known, with a known uh, frequency spectrum. And so that's being scanned at the same time that this unknown material is being scanned. And it allows for calibration of the laser frequency. I don't know. I didn't see what the lifetime of that decay was, but this entire experiment is being pulsed at 10 hertz. So, oh well, this has an adjustable delay. So all it's doing is, well, so the, the computer controls this boxcar integrator, and it tells it from when you detect, first detect a signal from the photodetector, wait x number of, x amount of time before doing your measurement. Yeah, I mean, the time, the time should, um, well, it will, it will vary. You'll, it will sweep through the lifetime of this fluorescence. Okay. So you'll start if you, I mean, if, if at this point in time the uh, ground state is just being excited and it takes some time for it to fluoresce, you record, you're not going to get any measurement because the fluorescence hasn't happened yet. And as you wait longer and longer, you eventually get to a point where the fluorescence is occurring. And if you wait too long, the fluorescence has all happened. So you're scanning that using the boxcar. OK, so some other questions that are open. Um, did anyone catch that there was a neon buffer gas mixed in with these NH radicals? 
Station. Let me go back and see what page that was on. Um, Okay. Yeah, the bottom of the page 116 says to achieve a sufficiently fast rotational relaxation of the NH radical, the hydrozoic acid is diluted by known amounts of neon. The appropriate mixing ratio is chosen such that the total pressure is 10 to the fourth pascals. These conditions provide sufficient probe signal intensity and at the same time avoid electronic quenching of the NH radical. If anyone can translate that. So to avoid, so quenching would mean, uh, yeah, having decay due to collisions. So if the pressure is too high, then you can get uh, non-fluorescence decay due to... So that's in step... Yes. In step, step one, if the pressure is too high, you can get uh, energy transfer through mechanical means. Okay, so you don't want the pressure too high. Um, if the pressure is too low, what happens? So the collisions allow energy to be transferred to a lower state. We said we wanted that to happen if that lower state is, is the bottom of this energy band. Right? So we want the rotation and vibrational degrees of freedom to decay to their lowest state. But we don't want the electronic energy level to decay to the ground state. So you want to have enough inert partners in there. So neon is an inert gas that doesn't react uh, that can just bump around with the atoms or with the radicals enough to take away their vibration, just to damp out their vibration and rotation, but not enough to carry away their electronic energy. Um, page 119 lists a couple of necessary conditions for this experiment. The top of page 119. So let's discuss those. First condition, there has to be a strong population inversion between the triplet and singlet state. In the dissociation of NH3, the inversion is 100%. Uh, what is that? What does that mean? Right. So this whole process assumes that the population starts in this intermediate state. Um, if it didn't, if you had a large population in the ground state to begin with, you wouldn't get the... Um, you wouldn't get the strong absorption of the probe when it's tuned to this transition. So you wouldn't have the same population inversion. And it says that uh, because of the chemistry involved, all the radicals begin in this upper state. So that's not an issue. The second condition says complete rotational relaxation has to be significantly faster than electronic quenching. This is related to the neon buffer gas. So what does that mean? Yeah. Bo? 
That's Yeah, so it's starting up here somewhere in these higher states. We're assuming that it goes down to this lower state, and then it's being pumped or stimulated down to this lower state. So if you weren't to stimulate it, it would eventually find its way down here on its own. You just need to make sure that before that happens, it gets to this state, so that at some point, it's sitting in the bottom of this upper state. And if that weren't the case, if it was able to electronic quenching were stronger than rotational and vibrational relaxation. What that means is it would decay into this ground state before it had a chance to uh, lose its rotational and vibrational degrees of freedom. Okay. I think the last question I wanted to ask was uh, on the next page, 120. The line shapes for each of the rotational and vibrational transitions were computed, and they're shown in equation four. Based on that line shape, what can we say about the broadening mechanisms? Any thoughts? So yeah, so it, it is Gaussian. As a what's the other? shape Lorentzian. Um, which one represents the natural line width? Lorentzian. And what has a Gaussian line width? Doppler broadened. So this is probably Doppler broadened. In a sense, that shouldn't be surprising. We have a gas. Doppler broadening is usually the dominant mechanism in a gas because the molecules are free to move. So you have relatively high velocities. Um, right, so this is a Doppler broadened spectrum. Okay. So that's good. I think I think you're able to make uh, sense out of it once you have a little bit of guidance or once you go through it a little carefully. Um, and that's that's impressive because this is a paper that has a lot of stuff in it has some chemistry, which is unfamiliar, perhaps, to many of us. Um, it has a fairly complex scheme for manipulating the atomic states around. Um, the experimental layout is also fairly complex in that there's a lot of sort of things being used indirectly. The pump lasers are shown. There's timing issues. Um, and so you know, this is a, a fairly advanced spectroscopic measurement being made. And, uh, I think we have the tools now to understand that. Okay, so uh, we have two options. We can spend the next 20 minutes starting what was going to be next week's lecture, or we can leave 20 minutes early. It's up to you. It's on uh, saturation spectroscopy. We will uh, save, save the lecture for next time, though. Okay, so we're going to talk about nonlinear spectroscopy, or it's known as saturation spectroscopy. And there's a lot of different techniques. Some of them we've already talked about, like intermodulated fluorescence, that are used to circumvent the Doppler shift when you have Doppler-broadened transitions and you want to measure the natural line width of the material. And so we'll talk in more detail about the saturation effects that go on. Um, in the last homework, there was questions about what's the, do the dominant broadening mechanism for these various transitions. And I pointed out that, um, that saturation broadening broadens whatever line width you have after all the other broadening mechanisms are done with. And that was sort of an overly generalized statement. Um, the reality is the way the saturation broadening occurs depends on whether you have homogeneous or inhomogeneous broadening. And so we're going to talk about those details. And I'll just skip through the math because we'll get to that next time. But the idea is that if you have, for example, a Gaussian 
um, a Gaussian line shape that's made up of a bunch of little Lorentzians that each represent the natural line width of molecules moving at different frequencies, then when you illuminate that with, uh, with light, one particular one particular velocity component will absorb preferentially the one that is Doppler shifted onto resonance and that will saturate while the other ones won't and so the absorption profile would look like this where you've got saturation occurring just over a small hole and so this dip or this reduction in the unsaturated absorption spectrum represents the natural line width of these atoms that are shifted onto resonance. So instead of observing this broadened line width, you can look at the structure that's sitting on top of it to get at uh, what the individual atoms are doing inside. So all those lines are the same? These are intended to be all the same line widths. And because there's more atoms with lower velocity, there's larger total absorption, but the shape is intended to be the same. Um, the problem is that while in theory you can do that, it's difficult to measure directly because if you take a laser and you just scan it in frequency across here, what happens is whatever frequency you happen to be at is the one you're you're saturating. And that's what's shown here. So this represents our laser frequency. We're always saturating the atoms that have that particular velocity component. And so what we measure is the saturated absorption profile all the way across the transition. Even though at any one time we're only saturating one of them. So we need two lasers. One to saturate and one a weak one to scan that doesn't saturate. And that's, that's the basis of what we'll be discussing next time. I'll leave it at that. <laughs>